Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good evening, everybody. How y'all doing? Oh, the week is winding down. What an interesting week. Although, I'll say, not too bad, right? Holding on to hope as we see <laughs> coronavirus vaccines rolling out. Um, but I uh, hope you're prioritizing self-care centering mental health. Again, I've been asking myself that every single day. How's my mental health? I do like a midday check-in and then I even check in at the end of the night, kind of deciding if I need to maybe reorient my next day or whatnot, because uh, oh, we're isolating. Don't have access to all the things that normally make us feel good, um, which is going to bring us to our topic later in the show. We're going to be spending some time talking about the need for human contact, but more importantly, it's born out of a story about people saying, forget these rules. I'm getting out there. I need, I need some affection and some eroticism. So we're going to be talking about the connection between those ideals, both trying to hold the line and also feeling as though it's not necessarily working. Uh, question night, as always up on our love that energy page, weigh in on that. Uh, I want to get into some news. You know, again, I was talking about this, I think it was last night where I was saying, I'm confused that people are still confused about certain things. God bless it. Um, one of them is a 13 year old girl, right? Young, she got suspended from school. Actually, it looks like it was from the school bus. I don't know how you suspend someone. Can you just get suspended from the bus? Like you can go to school, but you can't use the bus anymore. Anyway, why? Well, she happened to mention on the bus that she's a lesbian. And apparently still, that's enough to get you uh, to lose your uh, privilege to ride the bus. Uh, yes. Yeah, so by the time she got home that day, the school had already called her dad and shared about the suspension. Why are we punishing people for just being who they are? Again, separating out whether or not you like the idea of people being gay and lesbian. Um, the fact is they are there and they still have a right to education, whether you agree with that or not. It's bizarre to me that we're still debating and discussing the worth and rights of certain people. So this was in Kansas. Uh, basically the bus driver overheard making the statement to her friends and wrote her up for inappropriate language. So apparently it's inappropriate language to discuss that you're gay. Why? Are you allowed to say you're straight? Is that inappropriate language? Shocking. Um, this is heartbreaking. So anyway, um, the mom has reached out to the school district, hasn't gotten any worthwhile response yet. Um, talking to the school district, uh, uh, district superintendent. Basically, I hope they sue the crap out of that school. Let me just, let me just go right to the punchline. You have to set a precedent that that's not okay. You have to set a precedent that you can't treat gay children like that. Your school's unsafe. Stuff hurts my heart. Um, also, COVID-19. Well, thank you to the BBC. Their news, they're saying that everyone in the UK <laughs> leaders have come out saying, y'all, it's a little too early 
to be deciding on summer plans, AKA you might not be getting a summer this year. I mean, that's really what you got to read between those lines. They're like, yeah, don't book those flights yet. Don't book that vacation home. Yeah, we might need to be pushing it into the fall. Now, here's the thing. Those that are like, I don't know if I'll survive that. It's in our hands. We are literally responsible for the the numbers of COVID infections. We then therefore also have the power of reducing and eliminating the continued transmission of the virus. So if you want your summer, you better gather your squad and your crew and tell them we're staying the hell home and we're wearing our masks. Um, you know what I mean? All right. <laughs> I'm like so tired of talking about that. Like follow the rules, please. Uh, tying into our next article, you know, again, loneliness. Looking at an article here, it's talking about how it's becoming a quiet health epidemic. Talk about it all the time, but they're looking at how it impacts your heart, your brain, and your longevity. One of the most toxic things uh, physiologically and neurologically and psychologically is isolation. Yeah, right? We literally need eye contact and touch and presence of other people. So yeah, it has an impact on your health and your brain, as does having a healthy relationship versus an unhealthy relationship. It, it, it impacts our uh, hormone levels, our immune response, 100%. Um, but again, that ties into what we just said about trying to make a summer plan. We have control over how all this goes. So we can't act like we're completely victimized you know, but if you and your friends and family are doing everything you can, well, then maybe you are being victimized by everybody else. God bless it. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, finally looking at a uh, big psychological research paper that came out. Love this one. Uh, basically it says that, uh, there's a lot of racial bias in psychiatric diagnosis and also psychiatric treatment. Yeah. There's also a lot of homophobia and sexism because the field is traditionally set up by white cis hetero men no shame, no shade, it's just what it is. And they've centered themselves. They've followed their norms and values and ideals and that's what's been built into psychology. That's the rubric through which they decide mental health versus mental illness. And a lot of the studies and research are done on white cis hetero people, mainly college students. And that will leave out people of all different other kinds of identities and people that are marginalized and exploited. And so that's why I'm very supportive of new psychological theory being developed and also people seeing other therapists, you know, gay people seeing maybe a gay therapist, black people seeing a black therapist, because they are probably better suited to be able to recognize and call that out. Because I do it all the time. You know, we're intersectional, we're talking about how whatever it is we're discussing diagnostically, how that might impact or be different based on someone being black, larger bodied, gay, queer, or trans. Is it relevant to them? We disregard a lot of diagnoses because some of them aren't an illness. It's a natural response to someone being trans living in a transphobic culture. How about this girl getting kicked off the bus and suspended from school for being a lesbian? Um, whatever occurs from that, anxiety, depression, self-esteem issues, that's not mental illness. That's a healthy, natural response to the trauma of uh, homophobia right? So we got to be better about that. We'll always be talking more about that. Um, all right, y'all. Question of the night up on our Love on IG page in the stories. And of course, DMs always open. Slide on in them. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. And now let's go to our next guest, Angelica Ross, actress, activist, host, entrepreneur, performer. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm amazing. How are you? I'm good. I want to just first off say congratulations. I was looking at all your accolades. Uh, you've you've done a lot so far. Well done. I've done a lot in my short, you know, 21 years of life. <laughs> um, how is your mental health right now through all that's going on in the world? Because there is a lot going on. Uh, it was starting to, um, I was concerned for a moment, you know, in the sense that uh, I go hard. 
People who know me know that I go hard on all the issues. I am the one who's quick to stand up for everybody. But um, sometimes you need to stand up for yourself. And so I kind of just removed myself from social media spaces. I'm doing a lot more writing and just I have a full plate right now with new music and production. And I just am kind of too busy to get lost in the thick of things. I, I saw you post that on your social media. Was that hard at first? Because whenever I've tried to take a break, I see my hand reaching out to grab the phone. I have to like pull it back. Well, you know, so I deleted the apps wow. from my phone. Wow. So I, uh, that's the first thing. Um, the next thing is like, you obviously still have access to these apps from the like web browsers on, you know, your computers and things like that. So it just takes um, a barrier away from me to not have it at my fingertips and for me to really just stay focused on what I need to focus on. Beautiful. I'm so proud of you for doing that. I, in my clinical practice, I recommend that to a lot of people for their mental health, and it's probably the number one thing that people push back on. So when people are successful at that, yeah. I'm always impressed. Um, so let's just dive in a little bit more. Self-care. What kind of self-care have you been doing other than taking breaks from social media? What's your general self-care practice? Right now, my self-care practice uh, consists of working out like twice a week with my trainer. So I'm still doing that. Um, so it's virtual and he's kicking my butt, but at least it's just keeping my body in shape and, and really flexible for whatever's coming up next. Uh, and I also have just been spending a lot of time with my dogs. So I have my two-year-old long-haired chihuahua hammer, and now he has a big sister um, I say big sister, even though she was just born, but she is a full-size Doberman, um, but she's only like 13 weeks old. So <laughs> watching them get along and trying to, you know, be a puppy mom is keeping my hands full. Yeah, you got your hands full. I have a little football And cat. as you yeah. can see, like right behind me, or actually on this side there um, is my piano. So for me a lot, my self-care is playing the piano as well as, uh, you know, my spiritual practice and sort of like chanting, um, and doing all that kind of stuff. So I, my space is my refuge. Oh, so nice. I can feel that when I look around your room. And it's interesting, when I was looking at a little bit of your journey, I read how your father initially said business school, not art school. And now you're, you're actually doing all of it. Yes, yes. It's amazing how life comes full circle. And um, I, that's why I really encourage folks to get tapped into what sort of the universe is asking of them and what you know because you can't necessarily think that these conventional methods are going to lead you to what you're looking for you really have to be tuned into what to look for which sometimes are just signs and symbols that are for a conscious mind if you're conscious enough to recognize them oh that's beautifully said i think often we're afraid to kind of be directed by those symbols or those archetypes or those dreams or those fantasies but I think sometimes that's maybe the most honest part of us. Absolutely. I mean, I'm working on some things right now that, uh, you know, I've been developing and just helping folks to understand the sort of perspective that I have um, and how I've come from this margins of the streets to living the life of my dreams right now. You're living the life of many people's dreams right now. <laughs> um, so I read this stat and it was really heartbreaking. Um, 2020 last year was the deadliest year on record for trans lives. Yes. And, and I had heard a stat, I think two years ago, that the life expectancy for someone who's trans is I think 36, but even younger for someone of color. Yeah, I mean, it's something that, you know, many of us trans women of color try not to sort of like focus on a repeat to okay. not sort of, uh, it's not, what I mean is just in our own sense of like, it has become this thing that has been a, 
a fulfilling prophecy that so many of our sisters aren't making it past 35. And so we're just speaking and affirming new life into ourselves and into community. And we are not going down without really amplifying our voices and fighting for our dignity and for our lives. So that's why you see that many folks like myself and like India Moore, um, you know, some folks will be like, hey, aren't you afraid of losing your jobs or endorsements or different things because you're speaking so uh, strongly on these issues? But in our eyes, we have nothing to lose um, because every day we know that we are losing one more sister. Heartbreaking. And, and also, I imagine for someone like yourself who has a platform, you have to take advantage of that. I, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, I mean, it's not unfortunate, but it's just one of those things that people don't understand how much work that women, black women, black trans women do that other people don't have to do. You know, other actors who are in my uh, industry and field who are white or white women or what have you, they're not expected to do the kind of work that I'm doing. Um, I just I just wanted to say I, pre I appreciate your comment about having the labor, you know, sometimes feeling that it's forced upon you and that, you know, myself as someone who's white and cis, I, I try to tell other white cis people, you know, we've created transphobia, we maintain it and we have to really step up and dismantle that. So, you know, to those listening, we got to do that work. Thank you. 100%. Absolutely. Um, so Project Fierce, talk to us a little bit about that. Project Fierce is just an incredible project that uh, came together with my friend Anthony Preston, who is someone I just met in the nonprofit circles around. And when he came to me about this song that he was doing with Ultra and with Mila and uh, about the cause really behind it. And he knows that I'm a community girl. But what he didn't know is that a girl can hum a tune too. So when he played the song, I was like, oh, you're not just gonna have me promoting it. I'm singing the hook on this song. I and the rest was history. Well done, I saw some of it on your socials. I loved watching you sing, you belted it out. It was beautiful. Thank so, you. So for those that wanna get involved before we let you go, what, how can they get involved in the Project Fierce? Yes, I mean, honestly, they can go right to Amazon, iTunes, and Spotify and pre-order that EP because the more they get their life to the song, the more that trans women will be able to have life-affirming life affirming support from trans-led organizations like the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, uh, GLAAD, and, and the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. Beautiful, and we'll keep putting that out on all of our socials. Angelica Ross, thank you so much for everything you're doing and also for being a part of our show tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Have a beautiful night. All right, we're back, and uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about alcohol. So one of the things I've been wanting everyone to look at is just the way different things play in their life, you know, what kind of impact they have, what kind of role they play, how you feel before, how you feel during, how you feel after. And look, everything in theory has the possibility of being a coping mechanism, right? And uh, in our culture, we love shaming certain things like sex and food. You're not allowed to use sex and food to improve your mood or to cope or to self-soothe. Yes, you can. You are allowed to eat your feelings. Yes, you are allowed to use sex to cope with your feelings. You're allowed to use whatever process makes sense to you if it doesn't have problematic outcomes. Because again, you know, there's a difference between coping and self-care, right? Coping is whatever it is you choose. And self-care tends to be the ones that have an enhancement in your life or at least, you know, a neutral outcome. So a lot of people, when we talk about alcohol, it, wow, it's a trigger. It brings up a lot because it's a lot to look at. And the question for me is never, are you an addict or not? I think the more important question is, is it helpful? What is the impact of alcohol in my life? And that can, that can shift and change. 
Um, even people that might use the word addict might not meet full criteria and there might be a period of their life where maybe alcohol can make sense, right? We, we never know. There's no diagnostic test that will prove whether or not you're an alcoholic. Why? Well, addiction's a metaphor. It's, it's a social construct. And what it really comes down to is an attempt to help people live lives that make sense to them and feel good to them. And we all can participate in some of that exploration. So whatever the current coping mechanisms you're using are, ask yourself, are they helping? Are they making things better? Because if they're making things harder, or making things more complex, or making things worse, then you make we might want to take a break. That doesn't mean you can't ever drink again. Uh, it just might mean right now that all that's going on in your life doesn't allow you to have the kind of you know relationship to alcohol that you'd want it to. So maybe circle back at another time, or maybe don't. You know, alcohol is something that I removed completely from my life last year. Started to see that it just wasn't having a beneficial impact. And I was looking at an article and I wanted to share some of this author's thoughts about the positives and benefits that removing alcohol had on her life and kind of unpack it a little bit. And I think what's really important is this author was saying that it wasn't about whether or not she's an alcoholic. She doesn't think in those terms and I don't think in those terms as well. The question for me is always, is said thing input whatever you want, what kind of impact is that having on you? Is it letting you live the life you want to live, live by your values and integrity or not? You know, um, everything and anything has the capacity to have a negative impact on us or a positive one. And sometimes it's not even the substance or the, or the object. It's <clears throat> our comfort with acknowledging it or, um, even just recognizing that's something that has meaning to us. But what, what this author went, went through was this journey of just being more introspective. So I wanted to break some of these down. The first one was sleep. Now, it's always interesting, right? Because I've shared with you before where if I had to you know, prescribe one thing that would help everyone across the board increase their mental health, but also their physical health, I would say sleep. It's the one, one foundational thing upon which we can't really achieve or work on all the other things we need to do if that need isn't met. So sleep is imperative. Alcohol has a negative impact on your sleep. It's a depressant. It can knock you out, but you don't necessarily stay asleep or have a high quality sleep. You don't necessarily go into the cycles you need to, and it's not necessarily going to be as restorative as it could be. So if you're having issues sleeping, it might be your alcohol use. Maybe you're drinking too much, or maybe you're drinking too closely to bed. So I come from a model of harm reduction because again, alcohol use is something that everyone needs to look at their relationship to it. And so the question is always, is there a way to reduce the harm? That's always my first entry point. I don't believe that if something's an issue, you need to remove it because that's not doable for everyone. And it's also not everyone's goal. And we're allowed to have joy and pleasure in our lives. So the first question, is there a way we can decrease the harm that this substance is causing, whether it's drugs, whether it's you know alcohol? And uh, for some, that's it. Just drink less or take breaks, uh, or don't drink right before bed. Boom, problem solved. But you wanna pay attention to that. Also, just the impact it has on us in social situations. Um, for many that are maybe more introverted, or more introspective, or not really social or outgoing, the use of alcohol becomes a really helpful buffer. But the bigger question I always pose is, make sure though, that you're in spaces and with people that you wanna be with. Because I don't want us using alcohol as a way to help us remain present in situations we don't wanna be in, situations that aren't good for us, or around people that just aren't the kind of people we wanna be around. The solution there is about actually just not going to those places or spending time with those people. So if you need alcohol to be somewhere, or if you need alcohol to have a good time, then that's because that person or situation isn't in itself a good time, and that's why you need the alcohol. Maybe do something else, Maybe be, or maybe do that thing with healthier, more available people, right? We shouldn't have to numb ourselves out on alcohol to be able to participate in certain things. Also, this whole idea of drinking can move some people away from their core values and their integrity, and that's the number one thing I saw. Um, 
I just wasn't acting like the person I wanted to see myself acting like. I wasn't really participating fully in these experiences. I would reflect back on the concert or the party or the dinner, and I didn't remember all of it. And I didn't necessarily really walk away having closely connected or bonded with people. When sober, those connections felt looser or false. It wasn't much I could look back to and kind of take with me. And so it created like a fragility in whatever experience or relationship I was having or relating to in those moments. It just wasn't, it wasn't honest. And that to me, I prefer authenticity always. I'd rather be present somewhere, sloppy, awkward, um, but yet be my full total self than to have a false representation always. Um, and then also finally it, not making it about whether or not you're an alcoholic and not making it about other people's opinions on it. Not everyone will be happy to hear that you've given up alcohol because you're someone they loved drinking with or because you'll now go to bed earlier or you won't be interested in going to bars. I no longer go to bars. It's not an environment that I enjoy. The value systems that are most meaningful to me don't tend to apply there. I go to bed early. I'm more of a morning person. And so it really reoriented my entire social life. But the meaningful, important people were still there and we still do things. We just do different things. You know, so it really puts a lot of your life and what you kind of prioritized in check. Beautiful thing. So maybe take some time away, see what comes of that. Maybe just kind of be more thoughtful about your its use. You know. All right, y'all. Coming up next is a uh, DM. So uh, we'll be sliding on in them. And uh, question night, as always, is on our Loveline IG page. So uh, hit that up. Listen to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Radio.com. All right, y'all. We are back, and now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. This question asks, hey, Dr. Chris, this is kind of a weird question. Nope, nope, I doubt it. Let's see. So I prefer to be anonymous. Yep, always is. But are there websites or books you recommend to find erotic novels? Getting pretty bored over here. Thank you. Ha! Well, I like what you're asking because it implies that you're honoring that you are still a sexual erotic being, even though we're in a time where we're socially distant. Um... Uh, it's hard to answer your question because I don't know what you're into, what you're looking for. Uh, gay, straight, trans, non-binary, like uh, kinky, vanilla. Couldn't help you. You got to Google. Uh, you're going to do some research, some legwork. That's not a world I know much about. It's not really my jam. Um, and I usually make people go on the journey. I say to them, I'm not just going to hand you a bunch of simple, easy resources. Take the time and explore because eroticism is very specific. It's so specific. It's so individualized. All of us have what we call an arousal template. And it's a constellation of all the different sights, smells, positions, clothing, like energies, power, like all these different pieces come together to create all the things that turn us on. Go on the journey. Start Googling top erotic novels or type in keywords and then erotic novel, depending on what you want to read about or what you want to see happen. There's a lot of great stuff out there. It's just not really a world that I'm deeply a part of. That's not my jam. When I'm reading, I'm reading a lot of uh, dense academic and intellectual and critical theory. Like that's the kind of stuff I'm into. Um, and when I work with clients, like I said, uh, we I'm not recommending books. I send them on that journey. I want people to empower themselves to know how to find these resources and really find what works for them. And what works and turns someone on is not going to work the same for someone else. So go on the journey. That's that's the part of the fun of it. You know what I mean? You can add solo sexuality and masturbation and sex play to the journey as you're reading clips and you're looking at photos and you're reading excerpts and you're thinking about what you might find in the book like all of that gets to be part of sex play it's like when i send couples to a sex boutique excuse me sex boutique to wander around 
and to ask questions and pick things up and, and come home with something that seemed exciting to them. And part of the fun can be at home before you go, uh, folding in the fantasy of what you might find into the sex play. And then when you get home, talking about what it was like to see each other in that erotic space, looking at things. I mean, all, you know, sex is so much bigger than what we do without our clothes at home, alone or with someone else in the bedroom. It's always operating on us. So step into that whole space, right? Go on that journey. Um, and I want to remind everyone else to do that just because we're struggling and times are tough. Now's the best time to be really focusing on self-pleasure. It's a form of self-care. It's a form of coping. It's a form of self-soothing and we, we don't honor it and legitimize it as such, but it is. So take the time, go on the journey, do your thing. There's so much out there right now. There's so much it's exploded. You know, 50 shades of gray, as much as that was a hot mess, poorly written, doesn't really honor how those relationships go. It really did normalize and, and create access and resources for more people to participate in all different ways in reading and writing and imagining and normalizing. So there's a lot out there. That's my answer. It's not a weird question. It's just a hard question to answer because sexuality is so specific. It's like psychology. It's so specific <laughs> to so many things that we can't theorize or universalize, you know? So go on the journey, but let me know what you found. Let me know what you like. I'd love to learn some recommendations from you. I can offer those to others. Um, but I, but I, I really like people going on the journey because there's so much in it, you know, before, during, and after. And we learn about ourselves and we enhance our own confidence. Um, and again, after you read one, you're going to maybe want more. And so get out there and find out what's going on in that world. Find some favorite authors, um, really great stuff out there. And I love that you want to do the novels because it just allows us to really work with our imagination and we can really personalize and create what we believe these people look like, right? Where film is so solid. It's so, it's such a monolith where this is just so expansive and so diversified. So step in and do it. Let me know how that goes. But I like anyone who's asking questions about pleasure and self-care because that's what we should be centering right now. Rest, pleasure and joy, and some self-care, you know? And uh, eroticism is a way to kind of get all those needs met. Just pulls it all together beautifully. So, all right, y'all. Uh, coming up, we're gonna be talking about human contact. There's a lot of people that are feeling like they need it and I appreciate it. It's healthy, it's required, but there are ways to still do it safe. We don't wanna be breaking COVID rules and regulations and not protecting ourselves and others in service of getting those needs met. So breaking that on down and then of course, closing out with some DMs. So stick around. You are listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back. And uh, I wanted to reflect back on something that came up last week. Um, last week's one of the shows, one of the DMs was someone essentially reaching out asking for permission. They wanted me to essentially support them and advocate for them, give them permission to pass on going to someone's baby shower. And it really made me realize that we have to talk more about boundaries and emotional self-care, right? Because the physical self-care, a lot of people understand. But when we talk about what that would look like in terms of psychology or emotionality, like what is emotional or psychological self-care look like? It winds up being about boundaries and limits. And those are really hard for us to set because we have these things in our culture that we think come before all else. And as, as I was saying is like someone's, you know, if it's your birthday, that is your priority. If it's your wedding, that is your priority. If you are having a child, that is your priority. Now, I don't mean that those that love us and participate in our lives, that it's not important to them, but just because something's a priority to you doesn't mean that that's, that, that should be, or somehow becomes more meaningful than what might be going on for someone else. Right. And the whole question came up where the person said, 
listen, you know, right now we're in the pandemic, so I don't feel safe going to an event that has 30 people. So that's number one. I feel pressure to attend something that doesn't feel safe to me. The, the, the baby shower. Number two, they then want me to also spend money. I don't have to spend and spend $150 on a COVID test, which makes sense, but I can't afford that. So now they're wanting me to come to an event that feels unsafe and then spend money. I don't have in order to attend this thing that I don't even want to go to that they're making me go to. And it just gets so complex. And I was saying in my answer that we're in a time where people are having, um, difficulty defending them, protecting their health. So I want to just start by saying, you don't have to go anywhere that doesn't feel safe. And it is okay to disappoint or let other people down. You don't have to go to a work event. You don't have to go to a birthday party. You don't have to go to a wedding. You don't have to go to a holiday event. You don't have to go to a bridal shower or baby shower if it feels unsafe to you, which by the way, it should to everyone. We're in a pandemic. We shouldn't be going to these things. These things should be rescheduled or canceled. Now is not the time to try to find a way to make those things happen. And people are doing it anyway. And it's dangerous because masks aren't 100%. And at a lot of these events, people aren't wearing them or they're touching the same surfaces or each other. So please say no if there's a group getting together to do something, period. You shouldn't have to defend you supporting your health. I turn down all social events right now. I'm a part of the public health. I, that would be inappropriate for me to be going against what I'm advising, but I'm really serious when I say it's not safe and I'm seeing people do all these things anyway. Number two, you shouldn't have to defend your financial situation. If someone's wanting you to spend money on something, you have a right to say no, which by the way, heads up, if you want people to do that, you should be paying for that. I do believe that if you invite someone to certain events like this that require money, cover it. You don't have a right to expect everyone to have that finance. Look, I'll tell you a story. When I first moved to LA, this was 17 years ago. It was, it was very expensive to get here. <clears throat> I was struggling financially. And I remember going to a dinner party and they had a fixed menu and it was going to be $75 a head at this dinner party. So my mere presence was already going to be $75. I didn't have $75 to spend on that meal. Not to mention that the menu had nothing for me because I was vegan, still am. But the expectation that, I, that we all are in the same financial situation can afford that's problematic. I, I think that that is an issue. I pay for the entire dinner when I have a birthday dinner. I invite everyone to my birthday dinner and I cover it because I think it's a really wrong expectation to assume that they all can handle that or want to. You don't know what their finances are. So I said to the individual last week who wrote the DM, you don't need to go. It's okay to let them down or disappoint them in service of your public health because it's an event. And finances, that's, you know, come on, we're, we're on the whole boat with that stressor. So we want to definitely be very thoughtful. So my whole point was just really looking at the fact that, you know, when we talk about self-care in terms of emotionality or psychology, right, it's about boundaries and limits. And this was coming up for me as well. You know, I'm, I'm thankful and blessed that my work is out there. And so it means a lot of people reach out with a lot of different offers and requests. And just real quick, I have a question. And I've had to set boundaries around that. You know, I spend my entire week doing clinical practice and the radio show. I'm exhausted after that point. I, I don't have the time or energy to just real quick answer a question, which is never just a real quick question. So I've started having to ignore, set limits, or say, yeah, if it's quick. Uh, because that's my job. That 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 mental and emotional energy and focus goes to my work week. And on the weekends, I want to participate as a non-clinical person engaging in all the other areas and identities that are my life, right? And so that's a limit that disappoints people, but we have to be allowed to do that. We have to be allowed to have a moment where the workday is completely done, even if we have more work to do. Turning off your computer at the end of the workday and just being unavailable after 7 or 8 p.m. is a needed and healthy emotional boundary. 
Um, I do that. <laughs> like done. You know what I mean? So that's that's the first part. You know, again, also looking at the way people have access to us. You don't have to be endlessly available. This meme went around and it upset some people, but I thought it was beautiful where you say, hey, I wanted to see if you had the time or the energy to, to get on the phone or to have this important conversation. And if not, I understand. If you reach out to someone, call out that they might be busy. Don't assume that everyone has the availability you need. We never know what's going on in their life and we really struggle to think outside of ourselves. But just because you need something or you're planning something doesn't mean that they don't have other things going on that day or something more important. You know, and so yes, yeah, some people will have to miss our birthday party because maybe they had something else that was a priority to them that day and your priority isn't more meaningful than theirs, right? But we have to ask people, do you have the time or energy for this right now? Because people are burnt out, they're exhausted. I know I am. Like, I can't take on any more. I can't be any more available than I already am. And I'm having to set limits and disappoint people that want more than I'm available for able to give. And I've had to say to some people, listen, un unfortunately, I'm not able to really work you through, walk you through that right now. Please reach out to another supportive friend. Um, you know, I hit up in a few days and I have the bandwidth. It's really hard to say, but we have to be able to do that, right? We don't have to just make ourselves completely available at all times to anything. We're allowed to set those boundaries. So, and that's also what's coming up around the election right, is we get to decide what conversations we're engaging in based on where things go and the, the anxiety is spiking. And so that's kind of how we deal with the self-care around this election is the emotional, psychological. You don't have to have conversations with people that are racist or homophobic. You don't have to watch the news and have minute by minute updates. I've taken a break from the news completely. I have no idea what's going on and I won't until the election. I don't need to know what the numbers are. I don't need to know what's going on. I voted, I've done my part. And I've reached out to friends to make sure they are. And now we get to pause and step away. That's the self-care right now. Step away until election night, which is when we're forced to kind of re-encounter it again, you know? All right, y'all. Coming up next is a question of the night and then some DMs. So still some time to weigh in on that. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All righty, we are back and uh, we're talking about human contact. Now, I was looking at an article from The Guardian uh, and they were talking about, this was the headline. It said, um, we are, that's a quote, we are desperate for human contact. And then the subtitle is, the people breaking lockdown to have sex. So much in there. So believe me, I'm body positive and sex positive as you can get. And I really honor that the desire to, this is the thing I think that people don't understand about eroticism and sexuality is that it's it's not just about getting off, right? And, and there's nothing wrong with it when that is what it's only about. Um, it's so much bigger than that. It really is rooted in true human drives and human needs. And people challenge seeing it framed that way, but that's how I choose to frame it is that it is something we need. Um, we don't necessarily need uh, genital activity, but we need eroticism and sexuality. And that can take place in so many different ways. It doesn't always involve taking clothes off. It doesn't always involve penetration. It doesn't always involve genitals. But we do need to have our sexual selves mirrored back. You know, that's what's interesting about our youth is the one element <clears throat> that is never reflected back is our sexual erotic self. And there's a, re a lot of reasons why that is. But just sit with that concept for a second. Our athleticism is reflected back and valued, right? Our beauty, our intellect. But that's the one part that is left to be reflected back later in life when we're, you know, exploring sexuality with partners and ourselves. And so it's delayed. But it is something that's important. We can't have worth and value about 
any element of ourselves that doesn't have acceptance reflected back. We, we talk about this all the time. Self-esteem is not the right word. It's relational esteem. Our worth is an accumulation of what people have reflected back to us. We cannot feel of a lot of worth and value moving through the world if we're never seeing ourselves validated and complimented and, and mimicked. Uh, I'm sorry, not mimicked, but mirrored. And that's why we do need community around us if we're living in social or familial environments that people aren't honoring our gender expression, our sexuality, our blackness, um, our, our different shape or sized body. Yeah, that's why we talk a lot about that. Finding it in social media, finding it socially somehow, finding it reflected back in, in movies and books. Um, and so our sexual selves do need interaction. Um, because it also ties deeply into our needs for, as that article pointed out, just touch. Touch is soothing and healing. Touch is a requirement. Our brains are a social organ, only separated by skin. And we don't thrive without touch, not bo both in our early lives, but also in our adult lives. And I think we really negate that recognition that as an adult, we still need touch and affection to thrive. It's healing. It's one of the most powerful ways to help co-regulate someone who's dysregulated is, is to touch them, you know, with consent and appropriately, but to put your hand on their hand or on their shoulder or around them or to make eye contact, right? And so those are real needs, sexual needs, but it's bigger than just sex. And when someone says I have sexual needs, again, they, they immediately assume, you know, take your clothes off, penetration, genital. No, your sexual needs can be met in a wealth of ways. And that's why I challenge the idea that it's such a powerful need and it's been unmet for so long that people are breaking COVID rules to get those needs met because there are ways to get those needs met that actually can be followed within COVID rules. And so I agree with the premise. I don't agree with the solution that they think it mandates because the higher ethic does need to be that we have a collective responsibility for how we impact ourselves and others because COVID is spread through socialization. And that has to be primary. Yes, you can go a length of time without genital contact and penetration, especially because you can with yourself apply some of that with solo sexuality, right? Masturbation. But we need touch needs met and we need eye contact and that can be met safely. We can meet someone outside masked apart from them, making eye contact. I tell people all the time, you need to be out in the world a little bit, just seeing other people. We can get the contact needs met via eye contact, via FaceTime and, and sending pictures and videos. As far as literal touch, yes, maybe some of us need to massage ourselves because we are not quarantining with someone else that we could practice being touch, touched by and, and closeness with, right? But it'll be okay going a little longer without the literal anatomy erotic needs being met. So I do challenge when people say, well, touch is important. You're right, it is. But we don't necessarily need the clear, direct sexual touch to get those needs met. And some of us, it won't be the actual touch of another human for a while, but we can still have ourselves mirrored back with communication via eye contact, getting on FaceTime, being outside with someone, right? <clears throat> Washing your hands if you realize that you do need to hold someone's hand. It's strange times, but the more we follow what we're supposed to do, the sooner that this alleviates itself, right? But I, again, want to really center and prioritize that what we really need is eye contact and presence and that that will, that will help us along. That will do the best we can. And also, look, I'm being serious when I say this. What's been really meaningful to some is also getting a pet, another form of life that they can cuddle, touch, pet, lay with, sleep next to. It's really healing and meaningful for a lot of people I work with. I tell them, make sure that this is something that post-COVID you can still take responsible for and have the finance and the time and the space for because that's a real commitment that you need to take seriously, but that's another outlet. 
right? Self-massage, solo sexuality, having a pet, making a lot of eye contact with others, maybe finding someone that you feel safe with, you know, distant while masked, doing some hand holding or touching and washing our hands. I mean, you do what you need to do, but I, I do want to push back on not the premise because yes, we do need sex, right? It's okay for pleasure and release and self-soothing, but we don't necessarily need it to be partnered with genitals, especially when we're in the middle of a pandemic. So it's a little bit of both. And again, New York City Department of Public Health was one of the first ones on it. They listed and still have the same list of things that are safe using barrier methods, you know, getting kinky uh, glory holes where you're covered, they're covered, and it's just the exposure of the genitals. Learn to get a little hot and a little kinkier, but there are ways to do this. Um, masked in different positions, distant, certain acts only. Got to get, gotta get uh, creative. But again, the premise is good, but the, the breaking of the rules just is a little too risky. Um, that's my thoughts on that. All right, y'all, coming up, we're going to be sliding into those DMs. So if you got a DM for us, go to our Loveline IG page, drop it on in there, question of the night. As always, we're not doing it every night, but it's up always on the IG page in the story. So weigh in on that. And uh, past episodes of Loveline. You can go to wearechannelq.com, look for my little face, click it. There you are. All right, y'all, we'll be back. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back. Gosh, you know, it never ceases to amaze me. I like collecting these articles about ridiculous old school ways that we were uh, racist, homophobic, sex negative, body negative, and it never, it never ceases to amaze me. And, you know, remember, homosexuality up until about 76 or 1977 was considered a mental illness. It was literally a diagnosis in the diagnostic manual, the DSM that we still utilize. And it wasn't until 76 or 77, I forget which one, uh, that it was agreed that it was time to remove it. Now remember, diagnoses are decided upon by agreement. Uh, working groups of uh, therapists and psychologists come together and they they vote on it. <laughs> and every time there's a new edition, hundreds of more people wake up the next day having having had it decided that they are now considered you know, to have a, a diagnosable mental illness, which can be helpful because it helps people get access to resources and, and coverage from insurance companies, which are horrible enough as they are. But um, it also pathologizes, it, excuse me, it also pathologizes certain normal standard ways of functioning, depending on why and how they voted. Now, the voting's all done on research. It's not like they just sit down and run around and say, yeah, you're an A. But um, again, the research depends on who's doing it, uh, whose norms are being centered and who's not. But um Let's talk for a quick second about some of the ways historically that uh, homosexuality was trying to be cured. And it's still relevant. We still have people doing gay conversion therapy. I reported earlier on a girl getting, you know, um, kicked out of school, right? Suspended for saying she's a lesbian on the bus on the way to school. Very, very bizarre stuff. But the, we still need people to battle homophobia. It's still illegal. People are still murdered and imprisoned for it. Um, they used to do prostitution therapy. Now, we don't use the word prostitute anymore. It's sex worker. But um, they would encourage people that identified as gay or whatnot to have sex with a uh, female sex worker, thinking that they just needed to uh, sex it away, sex the gay away. doesn't work. Uh, marriage therapy. We've taught, you know, oh, gosh, just got to do a little marital couple therapy. You'll be fine. The gay, the gay will leave you. You'll no longer be a lesbian. Uh, also, there's the good old just don't have sex celibacy uh never works ever sex is a natural healthy part of us it's an actual healthy drive um and then it gets really dark 
you know, really, really painful and dark where they would do things like cauterize and try to mess with people's hormone levels to reduce their sex drive. Um, really, 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 really sad. Things like hypnosis. Yes, yes. Look deeply into my eyes. We're going to get rid of your homosexuality. You know, a lot of our sexual behaviors are imprinted. Um, some of it's genetic. Some of it's socialization. It's so many different ways that other things that turn us on emerge. You know, we can be eroticize. We can eroticize anything. We, you know, everyone's sexual interests are going to come from different places, experience, associations, some from trauma, some from genetics, some from social norms that they've internalized. Um, but some of them are pretty hardwired. We can't remove or implant sexual interest and desire. And thankfully, thankful for that. Radiation treatment. I mean, think about that. That's horrible. They thought that maybe they had an overactive thymus, and so they'd use x-ray radiation, could atrophy the gland. I mean, sit with that. Trying to cure something that isn't wrong, bad, or an illness. It's really shocking. Hormone therapy, talked about that. Lobotomy, portions of their brain. I mean, being removed or traumatized in order to try to remove someone away from. And this is all why we still have to talk a lot about not just homophobia and all that, but also just sex positivity. There's still so much stigma and negativity associated with that area of, of life. I, I even see it in my own field where sometimes the study of sexuality is seen as a lesser science or a lesser priority, even though it's something we all participate in. And there's so much cultural work to do around normalizing and instilling confidence. There are still therapists that are untrained and uncomfortable even talking about these topics. I just had a friend today who's in therapy school talking about a, another therapy student who in supervision was saying that they were uncomfortable even hearing my friend talk about a case and the kind of work he was doing with a couple he's working with and their sexuality, this therapist couldn't even hear, wasn't comfortable even listening in supervision. That's how much work we have to do where we are culturally both obsessed and anxious and afraid of sex. And it's such an interesting tension and dichotomy to both be obsessed and also afraid of. And that's, and that's the misuse of all this. And again, the work is about normalizing, getting more familiar talking about, like we're always trying to normalize talking about mental health. We have to get familiar and normalize talking about sexuality and our sexual bodies and just our bodies in general, using the right language, using appropriate language, right? Really normalizing that. That's part of the work I do with everyone is I have to do a new sex education. Our sex education's horrible and then media makes it worse. Porn is the worst form of sex education in most, in most ways, most times for most people. And so I like that porn exists, it can familiarize, it can inspire, it can challenge, but it's not supposed to be educational, it's media. <laughs> it's erotic media. So we have so much work to do, but when you look back at the history of how we've treated, I mean, even now, we will look back at some point and be so ashamed of how we've treated both black bodies, but also fat bodies, sexual bodies, trans bodies. So much work to do. Um, all right, coming up next, we're going to be sliding into those DMs, closing out the show with that. So uh, if you got a DM, drop it in our Loveline IG page. And um, yeah, question of the night, as always, up on our Loveline IG page at all. A lot happens over there. Hope you all are following us. All right, we'll be back listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, y'all, we are back, and now it's time to slide into our DMs. Sliding into the DMs. All right, this one asks, hey, Dr. Chris, my name is Samantha, and uh, I've been with my boyfriend, Sean, for four years. I just recently got pregnant, and it seems like everyone is excited about the baby but him. 
His family has already come over to decorate our spare room for the baby. They've gotten clothes and everything, but Sean just sits there. I told him that if he didn't want this baby, he could leave, but that I want his family in the baby's life. He says he doesn't want to leave, but I hate this negative energy. Can I make him leave? Part of me thinks he might just be scared, but when I ask him if that's it, he just stays quiet. I don't know what to do. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't make him leave. I don't think that that's the solution. You know, you have to remember, childbirth is has an impact on the father. And we talked about that actually earlier this, earlier this week. And people underestimate that where they don't center that. They just focus exclusively on the mother as though she's the only person who has an experience of this. But fathers are deeply impacted. Um, other loved ones are as well. He might be having his own postpartum depression, 100%. We talked about that earlier this week. Men, male caregivers also experience that. And they more so if their own partner does themselves. So hold space for that. You're, you're, you're jumping way too quick to all these diagnoses, like he's being a jerk, he's not being fair, he's depressed. He gets to have his experience. You need to be supportive, just like you need him to support you. I don't know what this means for him financially. Maybe he has career struggles and he's worried about the sustainability of that. It's hard and new for him to step into the role as father. I don't know what this means for him, but it doesn't sound like you're being the best partner by wanting to immediately go to its negative energy and I'm kicking him out. If he's having some postpartum depression as well, that's not negative energy. You wouldn't want that set or applied to you. You need to be more loving, more open, and a better partner. He needs his journey. This is where he's at. Some mothers are depressed after giving childbirth. We don't kick them out and call them negative. We normalize and understand that that is a healthy response. Some people get anxious and depressed over stepping into this important role. It's overwhelming. It's new. We can't prepare for it. We are forced to figure it out as it goes. There's no preparing. There's no readiness. And he's going through his own journey. And I need you to step up and be better. You both just brought a child into the world. Yes, you both did. He was part of that and will continue to be. And it's not as, you know, flowers and unicorns and rainbows as it is for you. And that's okay. We're trying to normalize natural, healthy responses to bringing a new child home and into the family. And this is where he's at. So give him space. Keep talking to him. But you need to talk to him lovingly. I want to make sure you're not coming at him with your being negative. Because that's unfair. That's unkind, right? You need to lovingly be like, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? you know, and share your experience. But his his experience is just as relevant and meaningful. He's the father. He has a right to his feelings. So hold space for that. You know, I'm glad his family's being great. Lean more into that. Don't let his journey overshadow and eclipse yours. Still have full space of joy and love and excitement. His family's there, but you have to let him go on his journey. This is part of showing that you're also a good partner is what do you, how do you show up and how do you deal with his difficult times? There'll be more down the road and you'll want him to be there for yours. And that's how you're showing him. We're going to be that couple where we let each go through our journey and we stand by each other. We don't go into toxic positivity and say, smile, it's all good. No, it's not for him. And we certainly don't threaten or discuss kicking them out because they're having a tough time. That is unsafe and that's unkind. And so let's, let's be a little bit better. You know, everyone has their own journey. Everyone has their own meaning that's applied to these moments. And I don't know what it means for him. I don't know what it changes for him. I don't know what was going on in the context of his life when this happened, right? And he has a right to process that. Maybe he needs therapy. Maybe he needs you to be more loving and supportive. Maybe he needs to be left alone and work on some of this on his own. But let's just not talk about things like kicking him out. That's a little dramatic for, for what's going on. He's struggling and having some low mood. Like, 
that has to be allowed. It has to, because it will occur again around other things, especially as your child has their own developmental process. That's going to be hard. Parenting's difficult. So let's hold space for that. All right. All right, y'all. That is our show. We'll be back on Monday. If you want to check out some past episodes of Loveline, go to wearechannelq.com. Question of the night, as always, is up on our Loveline AG page in the stories. Please, this weekend, focus on rest, self-care, tons of joy and pleasure. Thanks for hanging out. And you guys have a beautiful, beautiful rest of your night.